Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I believe we've reached a tipping point with the utility industry in terms of the utility industry is ready to step into a leadership role in facilitating the transition rather than being pulled along by policy or sort of other mandates requiring them to do it. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled you've chosen to spend yet another week of Suncast here with us. Excited to bring you today's guest. And if you jumped straight into this episode and haven't yet listened to episode 165, which is part one with Julia Ham, well, I strongly encourage you to go back and check that one out as we cover SEPA's role in launching the modern US solar era, Julia's early involvement and how she's been working with Puerto Rico and so much more. Well, today in part two, we dig into SEPA's State of the Union moving beyond 2019, their four pathways framework for achieving a smarter and cleaner electric grid, Julia's ardent perspective on carbon-free versus 100% renewable energy, and hiring and keeping A players. Well, if you'd like to meet Julia and I in person, you'll have your chance at SPI in Salt Lake City in a few short weeks. Head over and bookmark podcastlounge.live. That's a website, podcastlounge.live, so you can stay abreast of the program. Or if you'd like to participate or even sponsor a session, we look forward to seeing you there. So go check out podcastlounge.live, okay? Without further ado, let's tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, welcome back to part two with Julia Hamm, the president and CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance, SEPA, as it is otherwise known. Julia, so great to have you back on Suncast. Thanks for having me. I wanted to take a chance in the second round to talk about what's happening moving forward for SEPA and a little bit about how you, as the leader of the organization, have built it to serve the interests of the industry. You know, one of the things just for those who maybe didn't listen to the first interview was the differentiation that we touched on between SEPA and SIA, one, you know, being a trade organization and the other, an association to serve the interests of the industry versus the members. I think that that was a really important one. I want to encourage those who maybe haven't listened to that episode. It is, you know, 35 minutes worth of, uh, of goodness that you really want to go and and take a listen to, be that as it may. Today, I want to start with the SEPA organization in 2019. I guess what I'd love to just give you a platform for is if you would disambiguate for us SEPA as an organization within the solar industry, um, we're going to probably rehash a little bit some of the stuff that we touched on in the first episode, but I'll give you an opportunity there to really set the platform and the direction for what SEPA is leaning into, how you view the organization as a catalyst in our industry and where it's going in 2019 and beyond. 
Great. Thanks, Nico. Well, I, I think the first really important point to recognize is that while SEPA's roots are in the solar industry, as an organization, we have expanded significantly over the past few years and are no longer focused on a single technology. So solar is still critically important to what we're, the work that we're doing. It's an integral part of it. But our vision is to get to a carbon-free energy system by 2050. And the day-to-day work we do is around our mission, which is to ensure that we have a smart transition to a clean and modern grid. While solar is an important part, it is just one part of what we need in order to accomplish all of that. So we're really working across technologies, across the entire electric grid to ensure that we get to this clean and modern system that ultimately leads to a carbon-free energy system. So I think that's the first really important sort of differentiator about the organization. And we're thinking very holistically about how all resources have to work together on the system, how we have to go about changing how we plan and operate the system. And that's very different than what any one technology-specific trade association. And are there core pieces of the, the SEPA platform, if you will, that enunciate how you're going about that? I mean, what are the programmatic focus, focus, foci? How do you say that word? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me start also just by talking a little bit about our membership mix before I talk about the, the focus areas, because I do think it is also an important differentiator to understand the stakeholders that come to the SEPA table. So, well, as you mentioned, you know, we are not a trade association that exists to serve the interests of our members. We are a nonprofit that exists to serve our mission, and we happen to have a membership base that supports that mission. So our members really represent the entire ecosystem of the energy industry, but with a heavy emphasis on the traditional electric utility sector. So we have 700, over 725 electric utilities here in the U.S. who are members. So almost all of the investor-owned utilities and hundreds of munis and co-ops are all members. We also have 35 of the 50 public utility commissions, most of the state energy offices, and hundreds of technology companies, be it manufacturers, project developers, other solution providers, and other service providers. So it really is this platform, SEPA serves as a platform for all stakeholders to work collaboratively towards the organization's mission. So to get to to the question that you asked, what are our focus areas? So we have four focus areas. We call them SEPA's pathways. And our pathways are utility business models, regulatory innovation, grid integration, and transportation electrification. So we can, you know, maybe we can dig in a little bit to talk about what what each of those four really means in terms of, of what we're doing. Yeah. And can you repeat them for me? Utility business models, grid integration. Regulatory innovation. Uh-huh and transportation electrification. Yeah, I would love to dig into each one of those. In particular, there's, you know, I think that there's some jargon for those who have listened to, to the last interview with you or with Bill Parsons. There's a lot, you know, it's alphabet soup inside the beltway. There's a lot of stuff that hinges around acronyms. And I think that folks just generally, you know, lean on organizations like SEPA and uh, SIA and ACOR to help unpack 
what regulatory the regulatory environment even means. And I would suggest that some people uh, would say that there is no innovation around regulatory the regulatory <laughs> environment. That it's uh, in many ways just rehashing stuff that's happened in other industries and trying to adopt it for solar. So I'd love to start there. What does regulatory innovation look like for those who are not? policy wonks or regulatory wonks, uh, I'll sort of try to keep it basic to start with. But essentially, the U.S. utility industry is a highly regulated industry. All of the investor-owned utilities are regulated by their state public utility commission, or in some cases, they they call the public service commission. And state by state, there's variation on how much regulatory authority the, the state commission might have over municipal utilities and rural co-ops. For the most part, municipalities and co-ops are regulated by their own uh, separate boards rather than by the state. But at a minimum, we're we're really talking about the investor-owned utility sector being highly regulated by the state public utility commission. So, you know, that is a very different dynamic than what a company in the solar industry or any other technology provider is used to. Because essentially, these these regulatory bodies in some ways act as sort of semi-judicial bodies in terms of there are formal cases, proceedings in front of the commission that the commissioners rule on. So the, the utilities have to go to the commission and essentially propose what it is that they want to do, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of setting rates, in terms of new program designs, new procurements, and the commission has to approve those proposals from the utility. And there there are entire processes around that where stakeholders can provide input to help inform the decision of the commission. If I understand correctly, and I'm not a policy wonk, uh, I am trying to understand and navigate this world. For those who've listened to the number of episodes I've done around regulatory environment in the last uh, six months, it's clear. I'm trying to really wrap my head around this. But my general understanding is that as the industry formed uh, around these central generation assets and consolidation around utilities controlling those assets, there was a desire and a need to create these third-party regulatory bodies that help ensure that these you know, quasi-monopolistic businesses can't just operate at their own whim and at the whim of their shareholders to gain profit at the expense of a consumer who can't otherwise choose alternatives for, alternative sources for electricity. Is that a fair It, it is. Yeah, okay. that, that's a great articulation of it. But times have changed, right? So, so as we talk about regulatory innovation, that is where you know, the reason that SEPA has this, this is one of four focus areas, is one of our four pathways is because the structures, the processes, and the practices set up for state commissions, in many cases, were developed 100 years ago. As everyone listening to this podcast knows, the world that we live in, the, you know, the electricity sector in general, has changed drastically since, since then. Yeah. So there, there is a need for the regulatory system to evolve. Yep. And we actually have within our regulatory innovation pathway of work, we have a specific initiative called Renovate. And essentially that was a mashup of the words regulatory and innovation. So it's the Renovate Initiative, which is focused on the challenges that we see commonly across the country with commissions that 
you know, we're actively working to find uh, solutions for. And those include things like the fact that at public utility commissions, you know, the average tenure of a commissioner, I don't know the exact number, but it's very short. It's two to three years is the average tenure of a commissioner. On the flip side, many commissions have staff who have worked at the commission for 30 plus years. So you have commissioners who are often new and by the time they get up to speed they're out the door and then on the other hand you have staff who are set in their ways and do things the way they've always done them so there's this whole category of challenges that the the renovate is the renovate initiative is working on around people and knowledge how do we make sure that not only people at the commission but also stakeholders who are involved in those processes have the basic knowledge and information in order to ultimately lead to good decisions. So that's sort of problem number one we're working on is people with knowledge. Problem number two is around managing risk and uncertainty. And this this really gets to the, the changes that are happening within our industry and the fact that you know, commissioners have very standard ways of evaluating risk and making decisions about whether something a utility is proposing is prudent or not. And many of those processes and practices don't account for the fact that it's no longer, you know, lots of large central station power plants just delivering energy to an end user. But in fact, it's a much more two-way system today And we have to think differently about the ways in which all of the players make money, what those relationships might look like. So there's this whole category of managing risk and uncertainty. And then the third category is around sort of what we're calling managing the increased rate of change, which boils down basically to the fact that it is not unusual for a utility to make a proposal to the commission and for the proceeding to take years, you know, anywhere from, you know, eight months to to two years plus for the commission to go through the process and make a decision about whether the utility can do what has proposed or not. Well, we all know that things are changing so fast in our industry that oftentimes what a utility proposes today, two years from now is probably not what they would propose because they're going to have new, new technologies available to them, different partners in the industry that they could be working with. So essentially, we really need to find ways to speed up the regulatory process without sacrificing the intent of regulation in the first place. The fourth and final problem that we're looking to address is really around the increasing complexity of objectives. If we rewind to when commissions were originally established, the job of a commissioner was essentially economic regulation. Their job was to ensure that customers were paying fair and reasonable rates. And that was the entirety of their responsibility. But today, we live in a world where that remains very important. Affordability for customers is important. But commissioners are also now, in many states, expected to be thinking about meeting customer expectations around energy independence, 
commissioners are being expected to meet objectives related to environmental or climate targets, carbon targets. Uh, There's this whole long list of things that commissioners now have to balance as they evaluate proposals that are being made for what's going to happen in their state. And it's it's really challenging because there are trade-offs, right? And so it is much more challenging today for a commission because lowest cost used to always be the right answer. And today, lowest cost is an important factor, but it is only one piece of the equation. You know, it's really emblematic of your command of the space that you occupy, the role that you've been empowered with. I feel like that area of regulatory innovation is, in fact, which is why I want to start there, one of the things that people have the least amount of real clear understanding about it. It kind of feels, I mean, it is lawmaking, right? Like it's sort of the Washington, D.C. side of the whole business, if, if, it, if, if that can be applied. But it happens at a, at a state and a local level. You know, it's not, it's not just politicians. And in many cases, these commissioners are not themselves politicians. You've dealt with more commissioners than probably anybody. What is what does a typical commissioner look like? What's their career path? Oh, th- th- there is no one size fits all <laughs> one size fits all answer to that. And in some states, it varies by state. Some commissioners are appointed by the governor. In some states, they're elected. There are some states where it's a combination of appointments between the governor and the legislature. So there, there's no one size fits all process in terms of how someone becomes a commissioner. And there's also no one-size-fits-all profile of what a typical commissioner looks like. In some states, commissioners are well-seasoned energy industry professionals who really know their stuff. In other cases, it is not uncommon for governors to appoint people who have been state legislators from the legislature to the commission. And in that case, you know, these folks are not energy industry executives. Do you find that you guys are called in in those cases to help these folks really get a handle on the situation? Absolutely. The role of educating commissioners is increasingly important. And SEPA is one of many organizations that's often called upon to do that. So increasingly, you know, as SEPA produces content and deliverables across our four pathways, those, and I'll give you an example. So one of the four pathways is transportation electrification. So we've been doing a lot of work around this idea of managed charging, which essentially is this idea that ultimately the electric utility will be able to use a fleet, the fleet of electric vehicles in their service territory as a demand response asset. It's a very complicated topic. It's sort of a conceptually rather new There are some pilots happening around the country, but not a lot to point to in terms of success yet. That's a good example where we've published a number of papers on that topic. And it is very common for commissions to ask our subject matter experts on that topic to come and brief the commissioners or the commission staff on what that looks like and help educate them. Or if the commission is holding a public workshop on the topic of transportation electrification to bring our folks in to be presenters or educators at that workshop, or even for those reports to be used by stakeholders who are involved in the the formal regulatory proceeding 
often a utility or technology company may call SEPA and say, hey, we believe that this paper would be really helpful to educate the commission before they make this decision. Is it okay with you if we formally file your paper as part of our comments in this proceeding? Yeah, for those who have not gone and checked it out, the SEPA website, and we'll link to it in our show notes, is a veritable treasure trove of data thought leadership on the topic specific to the pathways, but specific to the overall uh, transformation of our grid. I'm glad that you touch on transportation electrification. So we'll spend uh, another minute there. And then I want to, I do want to touch on each of the four pathways if we can, if we, if time allows, but within transportation electrification, I feel like that's another area that it's a huge opportunity for state and uh, and local, uh, not only grid operators, but regulators and um, lawmakers to really try to wrap their heads around how it can be a net positive, not just for climate change, also just for mitigating risk, which you talked about around regulatory innovation, managing those risks and uncertainty. Where do you see states right now getting hung up or utilities getting hung up around the, the notion of transportation electrification and where as an industry might we help sort of lean in or what, what needs to happen or what needs to be created before this log jam breaks and we see transportation electrification just happen in mass? The big challenge in front of us is really around building out the charging infrastructure itself. And also related to that is, is there is more work that's needed in terms of interoperability, although we're starting to see some good progress on that, so that no matter what type of electric vehicle you have, you can use any public charger that's available today. That's not, not always the case. There's this chicken and egg problem. You know, as people think about investment in infrastructure, there is a question of, you know, is it a, if you build it, they will come? You know, if you build the charging the charging infrastructure across the country, will then people be more comfortable to actually purchase EVs? Or should we be waiting for people to purchase the EVs before investments in infrastructure are approved? So it really is this chicken or egg problem. You know, so we're starting to see that begin to get resolved. I think that policymakers, uh, regulators, and other stakeholders are increasingly getting comfortable with the fact that moving to an electrified transportation system helps meet broader societal goals. And therefore, we do need to be approving the investment in the charging infrastructure in order for people to get comfortable enough to actually purchase the cars. So we're, we're getting there. But then there are complications and where sometimes we're seeing states get hung up is the question around roles and responsibilities in that charging infrastructure. So should utilities be allowed to own chargers? Should utilities be allowed to invest in what's often called make ready? So essentially the utility invests in everything up to the point of the charger itself, but then third parties and customers should be responsible and own the charging equipment itself. So so lots of those questions are still getting sorted out around Really, it's, it, it ties into the business, the utility business models yeah. <laughs> pathway for SEPA because it is a business model question, you know, in terms of, of how utilities make their money, you know, what should they be investing in versus what should third parties or solution providers be investing in. So those are some of the current issues that the industry is tackling 
as it relates to uh, electrification of the transportation system. You know, the solar industry is increasingly competitive. How are you differentiating yourself and your company to close more sales? Our friends over at Aurora Solar, you know, the NREL validated solar sales and design tool that I've been mentioning lately, well, they've conducted over a year of research into understanding precisely what makes a solar sales proposal succeed. And they've agreed to share their insights with Suncast listeners in a free ebook. It's called The Solar Sales Playbook for Proposals That Close. You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash Aurora to download this playbook for free. And if we've done our job right, you should also see the link in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Check it out. And thanks to Aurora for this amazing free resource. If you missed the recent announcement in episode 175, it's a rare five-minute episode, so I encourage you to go ahead and add it to your queue right now. Want to suggest a featured topic, nominate a guest, or even host your own podcast in Solar Power International's Podcast Lounge? This is also a great branding opportunity. If you're interested in being a guest, host, or sponsor, go to podcastlounge.live. That's podcastlounge.live to learn more and apply. Now back to the show. Can you put into, it's not easy to put into a box, but maybe state in a better way than I probably could, the current transformation utilities are undergoing around business model. So sort of old versus new. So historically, utilities have invested capital into the system. Think about it in terms of poles and wires and power plants. And essentially, they were able to put that infrastructure in place and earn an investment on those assets. So that, that's sort of the historical way that utilities have made money, sort of part one. Two is on the retail side of the, the equation in terms of actual selling electricity to customers. So typically, if you look at your utility bill, the majority of the way the utility makes money is based on how many kilowatt hours of electricity you are using and purchasing from the utility. So it's essentially what's often called volumetric. And yet there are fixed costs of owning and maintaining the physical grid itself that are not accounted for in that volumetric cost. So as we see more energy efficiency, as we see customers with rooftop solar and behind the meter battery storage and EVs, All of that changes the amount of kilowatt hours that customers are buying from the utility, but we have to ensure that there's still enough revenue coming into the utility to pay for the grid itself, because the grid really is the platform that should allow us to, as customers, to be able to use all of these new and exciting technologies that we want to be using at our homes and businesses. So there's this, there's this question as we get back to the, the, okay, what needs to evolve with the utility business model? It's sort of two pieces. One is fundamentally, how does the utility make money in the future in a world where they may not be building as many big power plants and we may not need the poles and wires and transformers in the same way we needed them in the past. So if they're not earning as much of a return on those types of investments, 
what type of investments can they earn a return on as we look at a more distributed system? And then the second piece is the rates piece and figuring out how do you make sure that there's a fair rate structure so that customers are not overpaying for the system, depending on sort of their own individual situation, but ensuring that still, again, there's a fair rate structure so that the utility is earning enough revenue so that it can pay for the poles and wires and the rest of the grid system that everybody still needs. Because, you know, we're not at a place today, or I believe anytime probably in my lifetime, where the majority of people are going to be able to go off the grid. People are still going to need the grid, even if you have solar and battery and electric vehicle and a smart thermostat, you're still going to want the grid for a variety of reasons, including to be able to optimize your own system with your neighbors and other people on the system. We could do an entire conversation around utility business model. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who are saying, Nico, she didn't, you didn't finish that. Uh, <laughs> I get it. I really like that would take an entire hour on its own. Um, <laughs> and I think it's worth having. And it's probably for grid geeks and some other, and another podcast, <laughs> uh, you know, just saying, just saying grid geeks, you should call Julia, have that conversation. <laughs> utility business models. It's waiting for you. I'll tee it up. Let's go to grid integration. Yeah. So grid integration is really about how do we need to change how we plan and operate the system in light of the changes that are happening, um, you know, in terms of new different clean energy resources, a more distributed system, and really making sure that those changes are happening in a way that ensures that we have safe and portable reliable and clean all at the same time without, we don't want to sacrifice any of those things. We need all of them. So, you know, one very important topic in terms of grid integration, this is where a lot of our work happens that is technology specific. So our team spends a lot of time looking at battery storage as an example, looking at, you know, research around how it's being applied both behind the meter sort of at the customer site, but also on the, the grid itself by utilities, looking at the, the increased deployment of solar, you know, how do we make solar more of a firm resource rather than a variable resource? All of these things are part of the grid integration conversation, but it's also about you know, historically the, the utility industry there are very sophisticated and, and well thought out processes, for example, around tr transmission system planning. But historically, utilities didn't really have to do a lot of complex planning around the distribution system. Because again, it was a much simpler system in terms of there was power coming from central station power plants and it was getting sent through the poles and wires through the distribution system down to the end customer. But now utilities and grid operators, whoever the grid operator might be in any particular place, have to have a much more sophisticated understanding of customers' behaviors, both current behaviors, but also future behaviors. So as an example, utilities now are needing to get into the place where they're doing very sophisticated customer segmentation in order to try to forecast adoption of particular distributed energy resources. So yes, they have, they have historical data on what customers have put on rooftop solar, 
but they need to forecast not only what customers do they think are going to put on PV in the future, but also what customers are likely to have storage at their house, which customers are likely to purchase an EV and, and what time frame. Because all of those things, often what happens is we see clustering within a community. And so a utility needs to be able to know, okay, this community over here has a very high likelihood to have a high penetration of electric vehicles in the next X number of months or years. And therefore, here is the impact that that would have on the transformer that's associated with that community. And therefore, that means we need to make our investment decision about if and when that transformer needs to be upgraded or replaced based on predicting future customer behavior. And that is, that's just one example, but there is this whole new world of distribution system planning that utilities have got to, are now embracing and trying to figure out because of the fact that it's no longer this one-way power system, but that you know, historically utilities were making all of the, essentially had control and, and making all the decisions. And now so much more control and decision-making is going to be made by the customer. And the utility needs to be able to understand that, predict it, so that they are making appropriate investment decisions about the distribution system. I don't know that I could put my finger on companies that would claim grid integration. Would you be able to point me in the direction, just so I have an understanding of kind of the classification of someone who's working on grid integration? It's a combination of hardware and software solutions. So smart inverters are a good, probably very directly understandable technology for any of your listeners. So smart inverters are absolutely part of this grid integration and sort of distribution system management plan or process because the smart inverters, again, sort of allow the necessary communication and control of the PV systems between the customer and the utility or the third party who, if if a third party owns the, the PV system on a customer's roof. So smart inverters are a great example but there's also a lot of, as we talk about battery storage, there are a lot of battery storage companies will actually tell you, you know what, we're really a software company. Our, our value is in the software we have that helps balance the system. And that is as valuable as the actual battery itself. And then there's just a whole suite of technology companies that are software companies that are, and really software and forecasting companies. So companies that are both uh, helping to increase the visibility for utilities of what the customer cited DER are doing on the system, but also companies that have forecasting tools that are looking at historical customer behavior down to a feeder by feeder level in order to help predict what future customer purchasing behaviors will look like. So it really, there's such a wide range of, you know, grid integration, there's so much that fits in that category. There are so many different types of companies that are relevant to this conversation. So I'll actually make a quick call out to the Suncast tribe. If you work for one of these companies, I'd love to interview you guys for a better understanding of how you're helping with grid integration. Hey, for that matter, if you consider that your company falls along any of these specific pathways that SEPA is empowering 
utility business models, transportation electrification, regulatory innovation. These are areas that we probe here on Suncast. I want to meet the founders and the executives pushing these technologies and business models forward. I would encourage you to reach out and, uh, and let's see if we can have you on the show as well. I'd love to be able to compliment at the ground level some of the direction and uh, overarching guidance that Julia has given us here. Julia, one of the things that has become part of the zeitgeist of our industry uh, lately is the, the notion of uh, renewable energy uh, as a 100% commitment. Uh, RE100 is gaining momentum. Where is SEPA leaning in in that conversation? And what's the general sense you get from utilities where this is concerned? One of my new personal pet peeves is... You know, I often see, and this is largely, I you know, sort of see it in headlines of news stories and sort of in in media uh, outlets. But often, I see people using the terms um, "100% carbon free" and "100% renewables" as interchangeable, and, and they really are two different things. And it's important to recognize that. So, what we're seeing is. We believe we've reached a tipping point where the utility industry is beginning to recognize that they absolutely have to decarbonize the electricity system. And we're seeing utilities starting to make commitments to 100% decarbonization. And see if actually, for those who are interested, we a couple of months ago launched a decarbonization tracker on our website so you could see who has made those commitments. There are a lot of technologies that are necessary or can be used to get to a carbon-free energy system that aren't necessarily only renewables. But this sort of opens up a whole can of worms and, you know, different states have different definitions for what's renewable and what's not. You know, does big hydro, existing big hydro count or not? Some include it, some don't. It seems like a simple question, but when you start peeling back the layers of the onion, it quickly gets complicated. Utilities are challenged right now. And as they have big customers in particular, whether it be big cities, municipalities that they serve, and or large corporate customers that have a big presence in their service territory, as they have more and more of those customers making their own commitments to 100% renewables, you know, it's it's easy or, you know, easy enough when you have a handful of those. It will become challenging. You know, it is hard to get to 100% renewables. And you can look, you know, there's lots of studies that have been done on NREL has done studies on it. MIT has done studies on it. All sorts of groups have done studies on, you know, sort of how far can we go with a renewables only system. And I think we'll get there eventually, but it's just a matter of time frame. And so I think for SEPA, that's why we've chosen to focus on a carbon free energy system. It gives us more flexibility. But the interesting results to me in terms of most of the studies that have been done around even decarbonization is show that we can pretty easily and affordably get to 80% carbon free with existing technologies and processes. Still, we need to change how we plan and operate the system, but we can get to about 80% carbon free with what we've currently got. The real challenge comes in that last 20%. So again, this is this is not work that SEPA has done. This is work that that others have done. You know, again, that research shows that we're going to need we need a lot of investment in R and D to figure out 
you know, we need new technologies or, you know, some technologies that are sort of in very early stages that are just immensely cost prohibitive today. We need those technologies to come to market at an affordable price in order for us to get get to 100% carbon free. And again, you know, that may or may not all be renewables. Where could I go to read more or get smarter on this subject? And, And I want two specific answers. One is the the SEPA answer of what, what resources you have. The other is who folks at SEPA look to and, and how do you collaborate? I mean, where do you get broader information from? Are there other thought leaders that you think are doing stellar work in this, in this area? You know, SEPA really is early days in thinking about this issue. We've only just earlier this year adopted our vision of a carbon-free energy system by 2050. So we're still working on our own reference material related to that. As I mentioned, we do have the decarbonization tracker on our website now. We've written up a couple of blog posts. So we will, as time goes on, have, have more and more SEPA resources available on that. But at this point, again, like I said, there are a lot of others who have done great work. So there's an organization called the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, often referred to as C2ES, which has done some great work thinking about this actually from a policy perspective, a federal policy perspective. What are the different pathways of federal policy that could help propel us down this path of decarbonization? Another organization that's doing really great work is called the Clean Air Task Force, and the executive director of that group is Armand Cohen. He is one of the leading experts in climate change and sort of what needs to happen with the electricity system in order to to see that transition. He does some really good work. He, He works very closely with the utility industry, with individual utilities, as they're trying to figure out what their roadmaps should look like. As an example, Excel Energy is one of the first big utilities to make a commitment to 100% carbon-free electricity. And so they've worked very closely with Armin to figure out what their plan needs to look like. So for those who are looking for sort of more, okay, we could talk about this conceptually, but what does it actually mean? I'd actually encourage folks to look at the information from Excel Energy. They have a report that they've published that is sort of big picture on what needs to happen. But then the rubber really meets the road as they are beginning to file their integrated resource plans for the different states that they operate in, because that lays out the specifics of what they need to do in order to get to 100% carbon free. So Excel Energy is the best current real example to look at to understand how does a utility make this transition. Part of the work that you guys do at SEPA is really finding and curating thought leaders and thought leadership and and helping folks get their hands around problems that can move the industry forward. One of the core ways that you do that is by, as you said in our first interview, finding A players, surrounding yourself with people that are extremely high quality, thoughtful, intelligent, and willing to lean in in this time in their career where they could probably be doing anything and working for for major consulting firms, et cetera. How do you find and keep that talent? What do you look for in the interview? Is there a skill, a background, a framework? What are their interests? You know, I'm looking at, I'm thinking like soft skills, hard skills, et cetera. 
obviously to some degree it varies by position in terms of what expertise is needed but generally first and foremost the first thing we're looking for you know obviously we do the resume screens say does this person have on paper the necessary expertise and experience but once we get beyond that first look at the resume the next screen is really a culture fit screen for us so it is what makes SIPA such a fantastic place to work, which is what keeps people here, is the culture and the fact that everybody really enjoys working with one another. We hear it over and over again. You know, we survey our employees every quarter. There's an open-ended question about, you know, what do you want to make sure we keep doing that we don't change? And every time the comments are always keep hiring people that we love to work with. So, you know, as, as a, I love telling the story, we, we hired a relatively senior person into the team earlier this year. He came out of a big corporation. A couple of weeks into the job, he and I went to lunch and he said to me, he said, I have never worked anywhere where there is not a single jerk. And there are no jerks at SIPA. Like, how did you do that? <laughs> and it, it makes such a difference, right? <laughs> so it, it, it is all about, we believe in approachability and responsiveness and trustworthiness. All of those things are really important to us. And that's part of what we're looking for is we're interviewing people as people who are a cultural fit for the organization that their team fellow colleagues and team members are going to want to work with. But then that automatically translates to that means the industry is also going to want to work with them. So somebody can be the best subject matter expert in the world but if they're a jerk or if they're somebody that's really challenging to work with, they are not going to get hired to work at SEPA. So I think that's really important for us. That's what keeps people here when they could go other places and you know potentially make more money at a for-profit rather than working in a nonprofit. But the other piece of it, I would say, is, is the passion for the mission. So what makes, in addition to being a good cultural fit with the organization, we are a mission-driven organization. So people who are passionate about our mission, who believe in the collaborative process, the collaborative platform, the value of people working together to find solutions rather than working on things in an, in an antagonistic manner, those people come in and thrive because they have internal motivation to perform at the top of their game because they want to make a difference for the mission. And, and that's also what attracts people to, you know, it's what attracts people to work at SEPA, even when they have other options that makes them say, no, SEPA is the place I want to be. What has you the most excited right now for where not just solar, but the energy growth is in the market? I personally thrive on change. So, you know, yes, I, like we talked about it in the last episode, I've been doing this for 20 years and the constant has been change right? Things have always been changing in the industry. Things have always been changing for SEPA. But I think I'm really motivated and excited about the fact that the pace of change is expediting. And part of that is driven, well, I shouldn't say it's driven by, a result of that is that, as I said a few minutes ago, I believe we've reached a tipping point with the utility industry in terms of the utility industry is ready to step into a leadership role in facilitating the transition rather than being pulled along by policy or sort of other mandates requiring them to do it. Well, Julia, I often ask a question around 
learning. In particular, I like to understand how books or other resources have influenced your leadership style or shaped the way that you think about the world. Are there any resources that you'd be willing to put forth? Definitely. So I, I'm not going to recommend a single book, but rather an author who has a whole series of fantastic books that I recommend all of them. So his name is Patrick Lencioni. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. You know, it's so I think that the first book of his that I read that really had an impact on me is called Death by Meeting. It is so practical. I, let me take a step back and say almost all of his books are written as fables. So the really easy, interesting books to read, it's not a dry, boring leadership book. They're basically storytelling. But Death by Meeting really changed sort of how I operate day to day with my team. And I think personally, I think that is a book that I don't care what your job title is. If you if you have any role either as an organizer or a participant in meetings within your company, read Death by Meeting. But then he has a whole series of other ones. You know, he has the five dysfunctions of a team, the five uh, temptations of a CEO. Uh, so there's this whole and, and many others. But but all of them, I there are there are things that I've taken away from every one of his books that have pretty drastically changed either my philosophy or my direct sort of operating practice in my day to day. I would bet. Even if you haven't read it, you would totally identify with another book of his called The Advantage, yes, which is yep. <laughs> right, especially the way that you describe uh, the overall internal focus of organizational health and culture fit fits really well with that with that idea from The Advantage uh, that organizational health does trump everything else in business because you got to retain those people. They are the value that a business delivers and uh, deliver you do at SEPA. I would love to understand as a as an executive who has to constantly think about not just creating your own habits and practices, but, but helping others do the same. Is there anything for you that is a consistent habit or practice that's given you leverage or had a huge impact in your work? I think, and maybe it's just because now it's fresh on my mind because I just said it, but I think having a very thoughtful and consistent I'll say communication protocol, but it really often comes down to meeting protocol within the company is really important. And, and that's part of what Death by Meeting talks about, right? Is that you should have, there are different purposes for different meetings. And you know every organization should have a standard set of meetings that happen at a standard schedule of time. And they have different purposes and you have different people who need to be in those meetings. You know, So it just can't be a... Yes, ad hoc meetings are important and are valuable, but having regularly scheduled meetings for different purposes, personally, I think goes a very long way in making sure that the team, that every person on the team has the information they need in the right time frame. And that goes, that goes a long way in people being able to execute uh, effectively and efficiently. Speaking of communication, I'd love if you would give us a quick recap of how folks can communicate with you or with SEPA broadly. Is there, are there Twitter, LinkedIn, where, where do you guys find? Yeah, so SEPA is active on social media. SEPA Power is our Twitter handle. We're also active on Facebook. I'm active professionally on Twitter at Julia Ham. 
And so, yeah, I encourage everybody to connect with us. LinkedIn is also great. You know, please feel free to send me a LinkedIn invitation. I do my best to keep up with the requests I get. Connect with SIPA on LinkedIn. Certainly to tying back to, to your great note earlier about the fact that we're, we're always hiring. <laughs> uh, link, LinkedIn is a great way to keep up to speed with jobs that are available at SIPA. So we're always both from the SIPA account and my personal LinkedIn account we're always pushing those out both through LinkedIn and Twitter. So encourage you to, to connect with us via those channels. Our website, of course, is, is sepapower.org. Well, Julia, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? The thing that comes to mind, I know, is not unique to me. I personally believe that electric vehicles are going to happen. We're going to see this transition to electric vehicles much faster than most of the forecasts out there. I drive one myself. I know how phenomenal the experience is relative to an internal combustion engine car. And so I think the tipping point on new vehicle purchases that are EVs rather than gasoline-powered cars is going to happen way faster than most people think. You've been listening to Suncast with Julia Hamm, the CEO and president of the Smart Electric Power Alliance. Julia, we'll see you in a few short days, maybe weeks in uh, Salt Lake City at SBI. Great. Thanks for having me, Nico. That's a wrap, Solar Warrior. If you've loved what you hear today on Suncast, please take the time to show Julia and I some love by sharing this podcast with your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, and yeah, a shout on Twitter and LinkedIn would be much appreciated as well. Your recommendation is perhaps the highest compliment that we could receive. So please do rate and review this podcast in your podcast players of choice so that others can find and enjoy Suncast. Hey, if you're coming to SPI, as I said in the intro, We'll be in Salt Lake City from September 23rd to 26th and would love to meet you in person. Julie and I will be there recording live at the first ever Podcast Lounge. Head to www.podcastlounge.live to learn more. And I hope you'll come by and see us at the show. To learn more about today's guests or past episodes, just click on the listen link at mysuncast.com. And that'll take you to the episodes page where you'll get the show notes, social media and web links, and fantastic book recommendations by Julia and 180 other guests on Suncast. The whole back catalog is there and is chock full of goodies from interviews just like this one. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter and also rate and review this podcast. Check out the Suncast tribe and more at mysuncast.com. You know, I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.